0: Section 46 of Volume 1B of History of England from the Invasion of Julius Caesar to the Revolution of 1688. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Daniel Fraser History of England from the Invasion of Julius Caesar to the revolution of 1688 by David Hume volume 1b section 46 chapter 20 part 4 the envy of her friends on this occasion was not a greater proof of her merit than the triumph of her enemies a complete victory would not have given more joy to the English and their partisans the service of te deum which has so often been profaned by princes was publicly celebrated on this fortunate event at Paris. The Duke of Bedford fancied that by the captivity of that extraordinary woman, who had blasted all his successes, he should again recover his former ascendant over France. And to push farther the present advantage, he purchased the captive from John of Luxembourg, and formed a prosecution against her, which, whether it proceeded from vengeance or policy, was equally barbarous and dishonourable. There was no possible reason why Joan should not be regarded as a prisoner of war, and be entitled to all the courtesy and good usage which civilised nations practise towards enemies on these occasions. She had never, in her military capacity, forfeited, by any act of treachery or cruelty, her claim to that treatment. She was unstained by any civil crime. Even the virtues and the very decorums of her sex had ever been rigidly observed by her, and though her appearing in war and leading armies to battle may seem an exception, she had thereby performed such signal service to her prince that she had abundantly compensated for this irregularity, and was, on that very account, the more an object of praise and admiration. It was necessary, therefore, for the Duke of Bedford to interest religion some way in the prosecution and to cover under that cloak his violation of justice and humanity. The Bishop of Beauvais, a man wholly devoted to the English interests, presented a petition against Joan on pretence that she was taken within the bounds of his diocese, and he desired to have her tried by an ecclesiastical court for sorcery, impiety, idolatry and magic. The University of Paris was so mean as to join in the same request. Several prelates, among whom the Cardinal of Winchester was the only Englishman, were appointed her judges. They held their court in Rouen, where the young king of England then resided, and the maid, clothed in her former military apparel, but loaded with irons, was produced before this tribunal. She first desired to be eased of her chains. Her judges answered, that she had once already attempted an escape by throwing herself from a tower. She confessed the fact, maintained the justice of her intention, and owned that, if she could, she would still execute that purpose. All her other speeches showed the same firmness and intrepidity. Though harassed with interrogatories during the course of near four months, she never betrayed any weakness or womanish submission and no advantage was gained over her. The point which her judges pushed most vehemently was her visions and revelations, and intercourse with departed saints, and they asked her whether she would submit to the Church the truth of these inspirations. She replied that she would submit them to God, the fountain of truth. They then exclaimed that she was a heretic, and denied the authority of the Church. She appealed to the Pope. They rejected her appeal. They asked her why she put trust in her standard, which had been consecrated by magical incantations. She replied that she put trust in the supreme being alone, whose image was impressed upon it. They demanded why she carried in her hand that standard at the anointment and coronation of Charles at Rheims. She answered that the person who had shared the danger was entitled to share the glory when accused of going to war contrary to the decorums of her sex and of assuming government and command over men she scrupled not to reply that her sole purpose was to defeat the english and to expel them the kingdom in the issue she was condemned for all the crimes of which she had been accused aggravated by heresy her revelations were declared to be inventions of the devil to delude the people and she was sentenced to be delivered over to the secular arm. Joan, so long surrounded by inveterate enemies, who treated her with every mark of contumely, browbeaten and overawed by men of superior rank, and men invested with the ensigns of a sacred character which she had been accustomed to revere, felt her spirit at last subdued, and those visionary dreams of inspiration in which she had been buoyed up by the triumphs of success and the applauses of her own party, gave way to the terrors of that punishment to which she was sentenced. She publicly declared herself willing to recant. She acknowledged the illusion of those revelations which the church had rejected, and she promised never more to maintain them. Her sentence was then mitigated. She was condemned to perpetual imprisonment And to be fed during life on bread and water. Enough was now done to fulfil all political views, and to convince both the French and the English that the opinion of divine influence, which had so much encouraged the one and daunted the other, was entirely without foundation. But the barbarous vengeance of Joan's enemies was not satisfied with this victory, suspecting that the female dress which she had now consented to wear was disagreeable to her, they purposely placed in her apartment a suit of men's apparel, and watched for the effects of that temptation upon her. On the sight of a dress in which she had acquired so much renown, and which, she once believed, she wore by the particular appointment of heaven, all her former ideas and passions revived, and she ventured in her solitude to clothe herself again in the forbidden garment. Her insidious enemies caught her in that situation. Her fault was interpreted to be no less than a relapse into heresy. No recantation would now suffice, and no pardon could be granted her. She was condemned to be burned in the marketplace of Rouen, and the infamous sentence was accordingly executed. This admirable heroine, to whom the more generous superstition of the ancients would have erected altars, was on pretence of heresy and magic, delivered over alive to the flames, and expiated, by that dreadful punishment, the signal services which she had rendered to her prince and to her native country. The affairs of the English, far from being advanced by this execution, went every day more and more to decay. The great abilities of the regent were unable to resist the strong inclination which had seized the French to return under the obedience of their rightful sovereign, and which that act of cruelty was ill-fitted to remove. Chartres was surprised by a stratagem of the Count of Dunois. A body of the English, under Lord Willoughby, was defeated at Saint-Celerin upon the Sartre. The fair in the suburbs of Caen, seated in the midst of the English territories, was pillaged by Delors, a French officer. The Duke of Bedford himself was obliged by Dunois to raise the siege of Lanny, with some loss of reputation. And all these misfortunes, though light, yet being continued and uninterrupted, brought discredit on the English, and menaced them with an approaching revolution. But the chief detriment which the regent sustained was by the death of his Duchess, who had hitherto preserved some appearance of friendship between him and her brother, the Duke of Burgundy. And his marriage soon afterwards with Jacqueline of Luxembourg was the beginning of a breach between them. Philip complained that the regent had never had the civility to inform him of his intentions, and that so sudden a marriage was a slight on his sister's memory. The cardinal of Winchester mediated a reconciliation between these princes, and brought both of them to Saint-Omer for that purpose. The duke of Bedford, here expected the first visit, both as he was son, brother, and uncle to a king, and because he had already made such advances as to come into the Duke of Burgundy's territories in order to have an interview with him. But Philip, proud of his great power and independent dominions, refused to pay this compliment to the regent, and the two princes, unable to adjust the ceremonial, parted without seeing each other. A bad prognostic of their cordial intentions to renew past amity. Nothing could be more repugnant to the interests of the House of Burgundy than to unite the crowns of France and England on the same head. An event which, had it taken place, would have reduced the Duke to the rank of a petty prince, and have rendered his situation entirely dependent and precarious. The title also to the Crown of France, which, after the failure of the elder branches, might accrue to the duke or his posterity, had been sacrificed by the Treaty of Troy, and strangers and enemies were thereby irrevocably fixed upon the throne. Revenge alone had carried Philip into these impolitic measures, and a point of honour had hitherto induced him to maintain them. But as it is the nature of passion gradually to decay, while the sense of interest maintains a permanent influence and authority, The Duke had, for some years, appeared sensibly to relent in his animosity against Charles, and to hearken willingly to the apologies made by that Prince for the murder of the late Duke of Burgundy. His extreme youth was pleaded in his favour, his incapacity to judge for himself, the ascendant gained over him by his ministers, and his inability to resent a deed which, without his knowledge, had been perpetrated by those under whose guidance he was then placed. The more to flatter the pride of Philip, the King of France had banished from his court and presence Tanegui de Châtel, and all those who were concerned in that assassination, and had offered to make every other atonement which could be required of him. The distress which Charles had already suffered had tended to gratify the Duke's revenge. The miseries to which France had been so long exposed had begun to move his compassion. And the cries of all Europe admonished him that his resentment, which might hitherto be deemed pious, would, if carried further, be universally condemned as barbarous and unrelenting. While the Duke was in this disposition, every disgust which he received from England made a double impression upon him. The entreaties of the Count of Richemont and the Duke of Bourbon who had married his two sisters, had weight, and he finally determined to unite himself to the royal family of France, from which his own was descended. For this purpose, a congress was appointed at Arras, under the mediation of deputies from the Pope and the Council of Baal. The Duke of Burgundy came thither in person. The Duke of Bourbon, the Count of Richemont, and other persons of high rank, appeared as ambassadors from France and the English, having also been invited to attend, the Cardinal of Winchester, the Bishops of Norwich and St. David's, the Earls of Huntingdon and Suffolk with others, received from the Protector and Council a commission for that purpose. The conferences were held in the Abbey of St. Vast, and began with discussing the proposals of the two crowns which were so wide of each other as to admit of no hopes of accommodation. France offered to cede Normandy with Guienne, but both of them loaded with the usual homage and vassalage to the crown. As the claims of England upon France were universally unpopular in Europe, the mediators declared the offers of Charles very reasonable, and the Cardinal of Winchester, with the other English ambassadors, without giving a particular detail of their demands, immediately left the Congress there remained nothing but to discuss the mutual pretensions of Charles and Philip. These were easily adjusted. The vassal was in a situation to give law to his superior, and he exacted conditions which, had it not been for the present necessity, would have been deemed, to the last degree, dishonourable and disadvantageous to the crown of France. Besides making repeated atonements and acknowledgments for the murder of the Duke of Burgundy, Charles was obliged to cede all the towns of Picardy, which lay between the Somme and the Low Countries. He yielded several other territories. He agreed that these and all the other dominions of Philip should be held by him during his life, without doing any homage or swearing fealty to the present king, and he freed his subjects from all obligations to allegiance if ever he infringed this treaty. Such were the conditions upon which France purchased the friendship of the Duke of Burgundy. The Duke sent a herald to England with a letter, in which he notified the conclusion of the Treaty of Arras, and apologised for his departure from that of Troyes. The council received the herald with great coldness. They even assigned him his lodgings in a shoemaker's house, by way of insult. And the populace were so incensed, that if the Duke of Gloucester had not given him guards, his life would have been exposed to danger when he appeared in the streets. The Flemings, and other subjects of Philip, were insulted, and some of them murdered by the Londoners, and everything seemed to tend towards a rupture between the two nations. These violences were not disagreeable to the Duke of Burgundy, as they afforded him a pretense for the further measures which he intended to take against the English whom he now regarded as implacable and dangerous enemies. A few days after the Duke of Bedford received intelligence of this treaty, so fatal to the interests of England, he died at Rouen. A prince of great abilities, and of many virtues, and whose memory, except from the barbarous execution of the Maid of Orléans, was unsullied by any considerable blemish. Isabella, Queen of France, died a little before him, despised by the English, detested by the French, and reduced, in her latter years, to regard with an unnatural horror the progress and success of her own son in recovering possession of his kingdom. This period was also signalized by the death of the Earl of Arundel, a great English general, who, though he commanded three thousand men, was foiled by Zentrai at the head of six hundred and soon after expired of the wounds which he received in the action. The violent factions, which prevailed between the Duke of Gloucester and the Cardinal of Winchester, prevented the English from taking the proper measures for repairing these multiplied losses, and threw all their affairs into confusion. The popularity of the Duke, and his near relation to the Crown, gave him advantages in the contest, which he often lost by his open and unguarded temper unfit to struggle with the politic and interested spirit of his rival. The balance, meanwhile, of these parties kept everything in suspense. Foreign affairs were much neglected, and though the Duke of York, son to that Earl of Cambridge who was executed in the beginning of the last reign, was appointed successor to the Duke of Bedford, it was seven months before his commission passed the seals, and the English remained so long in an enemy's country without a proper head or governor. The new governor, on his arrival, found the capital already lost. The Parisians had always been more attached to the Burgundian than to the English interest, and after the conclusion of the Treaty of Arras, their affections, without any further control, universally led them to return their allegiance under their native sovereign. The constable, together with lille the same person who had before put Paris into the hands of the Duke of Burgundy, was introduced in the night-time by intelligence with the citizens. Lord Willoughby, who commanded only a small garrison of fifteen hundred men, was expelled. This nobleman discovered valour and presence of mind on the occasion. But unable to guard so large a place against such multitudes, he retired into the Bastille, and being there invested, he delivered up that fortress, and was contented to stipulate for the safe retreat of his troops into Normandy. In the same season, the Duke of Burgundy openly took part against England, and commenced hostilities by the siege of Calais, the only place which now gave the English any sure hold of France, and still rendered them dangerous. As he was beloved among his own subjects, and had acquired the epithet of good from his popular qualities, he was able to interest all the inhabitants of the Low Countries in the success of this enterprise, and he invested that place with an army formidable from its numbers, but without experience, discipline, or military spirit. On the first alarm of this siege, the Duke of Gloucester assembled some forces, sent a defiance to Philip, and challenged him to wait the event of a battle, which he promised to give as soon as the wind would permit him to reach Calais. The warlike genius of the English had, at that time, rendered them terrible to all the northern parts of Europe, especially to the Flemings, who were more expert in manufactures than in arms. And the Duke of Burgundy, being already foiled in some attempts before Calais, and observing the discontent and terror of his own army, thought proper to raise the siege and to retreat before the arrival of the enemy the english were still masters of many fine provinces in france but retained possession more by the extreme weakness of charles than by the strength of their own garrisons or the force of their armies nothing indeed can be more surprising than the feeble efforts made during the course of several years by these two potent nations against each other while the one struggled for independence and the other aspired to a total conquest of its rival. The general want of industry, commerce, and police in that age had rendered all the European nations, and France and England no less than the others, unfit for bearing the burdens of war when it was prolonged beyond one season, and the continuance of hostilities had, long ere this time, exhausted the force and patience of both kingdoms. Scarcely could the appearance of an army be brought into the field on either side, and all the operations consisted in the surprisal of places, in the rencounter of detached parties, and in incursions upon the open country, which were performed by small bodies, assembled on a sudden from the neighbouring garrisons. In this method of conducting the war, the French king had much the advantage. The affections of the people were entirely on his side. Intelligence was early brought to him of the state and motions of the enemy. The inhabitants were ready to join in any attempts against the garrisons, and thus ground was continually, though slowly, gained upon the English. The Duke of York, who was a prince of abilities, struggled against these difficulties during the course of five years, and being assisted by the valour of Lord Talbot, soon after created Earl of Shrewsbury. He performed actions which acquired him honour, but merit not the attention of posterity. It would have been well had this feeble war, in sparing the blood of the people, prevented likewise all other oppressions, and had the fury of men, which reason and justice cannot restrain, thus happily received a check from their impotence and inability. But the French and English, though they exerted such small force, were, however, stretching beyond their resources which were still smaller and the troops destitute of pay were obliged to subsist by plundering and oppressing the country both of friends and enemies the fields in all the north of france which was the seat of war were laid waste and left uncultivated the cities were gradually depopulated not by the blood spilt in battle but by the more destructive pillage of the garrisons And both parties, weary of hostilities which decided nothing, seemed at last desirous of peace, and they set on foot negotiations for that purpose. But the proposals of France and the demands of England were still so wide of each other that all hope of accommodation immediately vanished. The English ambassadors demanded restitution of all the provinces which had once been annexed to England together with the final session of Calais and its district, and required the possession of these extensive territories without the burden of any fealty or homage on the part of their prince. The French offered only part of Guienne, part of Normandy, and Calais, loaded with the usual burdens. It appeared in vain to continue the negotiation while there was so little prospect of agreement. The English were still too haughty, To stoop from the vast hopes which they had formerly entertained, and to accept of terms more suitable to the present condition of the two kingdoms. End of section 46, chapter 20, part 4. Recording by Daniel Fraser.